Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we wrestle through our responsibilities when we see things in the world we think are wrong. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Okay, uh, let's do a sermon. If you have a Bible, we'll be in, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4 this morning. Genesis chapter 4, once again this morning. Um, it's actually a really timely passage given what's going on. Uh, the subject we're looking at this morning, last week we, we, we talked about personal responsibility. And we asked the question of what is, what is the role of the church when it comes to, like what is the role as a Christian uh, when it comes to taking responsibility for actions and actually understanding that um, the, the Bible again and again invites us to, say, to see the sin in our lives, the brokenness in our lives, and to say, okay, that's real, and I got to do something about it. Uh, God meets us in that moment, but, it, but again and again, God says, I want you to repent. I want you to see it. I want you to change. Uh, and so last week, we spent a lot of time on the idea of personal responsibility, um, but where this is timely is the natural follow-up is the, the question about moral responsibility, where is it that you and I are responsible for each other? Where does the line between uh, personal responsibility, your responsibility for yourself, and, and our responsibility for each other begin? And what often you see happen, I think, in our world is we tend to pit these two against one another, right? Even in our modern discussions around the, the MSU stuff, those kinds of things, it tends to be uh, it's either personal responsibility or it's moral responsibility. It's either, you know, we tend to make it really black and white. It's either like, well, we won't get into it, but uh, we tend to make it really black and white, and we pit these two ideas up against each other as though they're rival ideas. But what you discover in the Bible is that um, God actually has a much, I think, far more helpful way to think about what it means to be our brother's keeper and uh, responsible for each other, while at the same time understanding that we have autonomy and we have to make um, personal choices and take personal responsibility. So, um, so with that... Uh, Let's look at Genesis chapter 4, um, just a, a quick recap. I hope you're beginning to see. Um, we've been, so for those who are new with us, we've been in Genesis now since the beginning of the year, and we're taking our time on it. Um, we spent last year working through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, this year we're spending some time in Genesis. And I hope what you're beginning to see is that a story is beginning to emerge. Um, we tend to treat the stories like individual stories, but what I hope you see is that the stories are beginning to stack on top of each other. We have the, the story of humanity, the story of sin and uh, the callousing of our hearts and uh, decisions that are made uh, intentionally away from God. We have the story of humanity, and then we also have the story of God who continues to pursue people and continues to draw people back to himself. Uh, this morning, I want to um, add another layer to our story now, the quick recap, if you weren't with us, um, let me give you last week's premise as quickly and succinctly as I can. If you're new, it's likely to raise all sorts of questions, um, it, but we don't have time to recover everything we did last week. You'll have, to, you'll have to listen to the podcast if you're at all interested, which you're probably not. But if you are, uh, last week uh, we spent a lot of time, uh, my premise was this, that if you piece together Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and you start to look, and Genesis 4, you start to look at these stories uh, and if you especially slow down and dare to ask the questions, especially when something comes off as weird, 
So Adam is lonely. God says, I need to make a suitable helper for Adam. But before God makes Eve, he prances out all the animals. And then, then you have this line that, but none of those animals were suitable helpers for Adam. And we ask the question, what a weird, bizarre moment to put, like, why would God have that moment? Why does God need to, like, do this weird dating game? Because that was, like, piece one. And then, and then you meet a snake, and the snake is a bizarre snake. It's not like a snake you're going to meet walking down a hiking path. Uh, this snake walks on two feet, apparently. Uh, the snake talks. The snake, we're told, is very smart. The snake likes good food, we're, we're led to believe. And so we've got a walking, talking snake who's smart and likes good things. And so what we, the premise last week was, it seems what your first couple chapters in your Bible are trying to do is provoke a certain crisis in you. What makes the snake a snake and not a human? Or another way to say that is, what makes humans human? It, it, it's not just that we talk or we walk or we uh, are, we're smart or we like good things. There's something, what makes a, a human a human? And uh, the conclusion of that whole journey last week was, the, the key difference is we're made in the image of God, which means something. And what it means is we actually can say no to our temptations. We don't have to follow all our temptations. We can say no to our desires. Animals live on instinct. They want something, they take it. That's a temptation of the snake. But humans can make decisions. We can say no. And it seems as though, if that's true, then you understand a little bit of why God might put a tree in the garden. He needs to remind humans that they're created different than just the, all the other animals. They actually can say no to their desires. That's where we left the story last week. Um, uh, that's my three-minute recap of a 50-minute sermon. Uh, let's go further in the story. Um, and to do that, let's, uh, for the sake of everyone who wasn't here last week, let's read through Genesis 4 once again, the story of Cain and Abel, and uh, take the story one layer deeper. Verse 1. By the way, how y'all doing? It's winter again. Yeah. Super Bowl. Was that good for you? Was it fun? Yeah. Rihanna, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I remember the day when, like, everyone would gather for the commercials, but now we got TikTok and YouTube, and, like, those are no longer, like, okay. Like, there was a day where I remember uh, all of, like, there would be, the, the guys would often be huddled around the TV, and the women would be, like, hanging out in the kitchen, and then um, during the commercials, everyone would get together, and we, but I, my party was very different this year. It was, like, everyone was kind of just hanging out. Um, anyway, Genesis 4, verse 1. <laughs> Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. <clears throat> and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Let me just pause there. Uh, that feels, uh, I'm guessing that raises some questions in you. It doesn't seem fair. Let's just name it. It doesn't seem fair. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to have time to address more on that today. I'm going I'm to give you a book that I find really helpful. Um, uh, if you're taking notes, write down the name Rabbi David Foreman, F-O-H-R. M-A-N. He's got a book called The Beast That Crouches at the Door. And it is fantastic. I, I think he does a really, really great job uh, working through this particular story. Um, but again, that's The Beast That Crouches at the Door. I think you can get it on Kindle for a couple bucks um, by Rabbi David Foreman. Um, 
Let's continue. Uh, Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Uh, That's where we stopped last week. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, if you've got your own Bible with you, you may want to circle that question. It's a question the Bible is going to come back to again and again in various forms. Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, This is where the... Uh, at, at first glance, the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Cain and Abel, they're very similar. Last week, we talked about nine similarities. The, 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 they're not intended. God does not intend for us to read these stories as two separate stories, but as one story that kind of overlap and stack on each other. If you want to understand story B, you have to read story A. And if you want to understand story A, you have to read story B. They're very similar, but they are different in one crucial way. If last week, uh, the story of Adam and Eve is about personal responsibility, Adam eats from the tree, Eve eats from the tree, and they immediately start blaming each other. It's not my fault, it's her fault. It's not my fault, it's his fault. It's the snake's fault. They deny personal responsibility. This story is asking a far different question, and it's one around moral responsibility, Am I responsible for his decisions? I mean, he's a man. He, it, like, it, if I just swing my fist like this and he walks into it, is that my fault, God? <laughs> like, this is like, how is this, how is this my issue? Now, here's the issue that this is going to raise in our story. If God's plan A with creation is that God wants to partner with people, all people at this point, all people, plan A, to take the creation somewhere, Partner with me to take care of the world, to steward the creation. And now you discover that one generation in, you've got uh, two boys, and they're already so jealous of each other that one of them decides he's going to take the other one's life, and he sees no issue with that. If you're God, what do you do? How do you restore this story? How somehow God is going to need to get Cain to see how what he did is a big deal. You can't just walk away from this, Cain. Somehow God is going to need to get Cain in order to restore the story, in order to restore Cain. Somehow he's going to need to get Cain to see that what he did, taking another person's life, is a big deal. Now, if you're God, what do you do? How do you do that? How can God nudge the story back on track? The same question applies to us today. Somehow, God, in our world, there's a number of people in our world who somehow need to be reminded that that what they do affects other people. How? How do we do that? How do we help people see that it, it... Instead of just moving right away to social policy and government uh, policies, how can we, before we, and that's important stuff, but how do we first, like what steps can we take to helping people see that in some way we're connected to each other? Now to get at that, I want to play a game that we uh, introduced last week. It's a game from Sesame Street. Uh, It's a game that um, I'm Sesame Street generation, so you have to bear with me, those of you who are younger. Uh, But the game uh, we introduced last week was called What Happens Next? What Happens Next? Now, I want you to imagine your God. I know that's a dangerous game, but imagine your God. Cain has just killed his brother Abel. Uh, The judge of the universe, you're now that judge. You're the judge, and you've got to sentence Cain. 
You got to determine his punishment. What punishment do you give Cain for what he did? What happens next? Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, the punishment should fit the crime, right? The punishment should fit the crime. You kill your brother, your life deserves to be taken, right? Then that, that's one approach. The punishment should fit the crime. At another level, maybe you're thinking, yeah, but like, actually, the punishment should fit the crime. So instead of uh, taking your life, we're going to sign you up for a lifetime of community service. You're going to have to work off your debt, like your debt to humanity by serving humanity for the rest of your life. That punishment would fit the crime. So if you're the judge of the universe and you've got to punish Cain, am I right that those are kind of where we would naturally go? Where this gets puzzling is when you see how God sentences Cain. It's interesting. This is what God says. This is the punishment. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, this is verse 10. Uh, Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. That's the punishment. Why that punishment? Like, you're going to... You killed your brother, so now you're going to wander the earth restlessly, and uh, the ground will not produce crops. It, it, at first glance, does not seem that the punishment fits the crime. That should clue us in that there's, there's got to be something going on here. Why would the, the almighty creator of the universe give that punishment to Cain? Now, if what we said last week is true... And the Adam and Eve story and the Cain and Abel story really are connected. They're not meant to be separated. Perhaps there's something we can learn about the first punishment, the one given to Adam and Eve, that will help us understand why God might give this punishment to Cain and Abel. We got some work to do. So what is it about that first punishment? Now, that sends us back to that very first story, the story of Adam and Eve, with a question. What was the first consequence... This is your Bible trivia uh, moment. What was the very first consequence? Before we get to the punishments, what was the first consequence of eating from the tree? And is that what you would expect the first consequence to be? Do you remember the story? Um, God says, uh, don't eat from the tree. Uh, You can eat all the other trees, but don't eat from this tree. Adam and Eve see the fruit. They want the fruit. They eat the fruit. God then then sees that Adam is hidden from him. He goes to confront Adam, and he says to Adam these words. um, Verse 9 of chapter 3. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because. Okay, stop the tape there. Let's play the game. What happens next? I want you to see how, like, just playing some of these kinds of games, you can actually start to, the, the Bible's trying to help you see some things. Um, what happens next? How would you assume Adam's going to respond? I was afraid because, because what? Naked. That's it. Is that how you assume it's going to respond? That's the right answer. Um, that's the right answer. Uh, I, Bob, you're so smart. You know your Bible so well. <laughs> it's a gray hair. It's always a gray hair. Uh, that, I'm going to assume. So the, the, the answer that he says is, I was naked. That's why I hid. But my assumption going in, going in if I stopped the tape there, I ate the fruit, I hid because I ate the fruit, and uh, God, I'm, I'm hiding because I was afraid because I did something you told me not to do. Told me not to eat the fruit, I ate the fruit. I'm hiding because I'm worried that I'm afraid that you're gonna punish me. Like, 
That's my natural assumption. What I'm not going to assume, off just like if I'm just reading the story off like for the first time, I am not going to assume that the initial response was, oh, I was naked. Here's why. Isn't it true that he's been naked this whole time? God's seen him naked. Like, is that like, why, why, why all of a sudden is his nakedness such a big deal to him? Up until this point, not concerned that he's naked. All of a sudden, now the very thing, and it's not just that he's concerned that he's naked, he's afraid that he's naked. We now have a puzzle to solve. Why is nakedness such a big deal? Now, when you step back from the story, what you begin to see is that this word naked comes up again and again and again in chapter 3 of Genesis. In fact, the, the verse that you could argue kicks off the, ver- the whole passage begins with nakedness. Uh, this is Genesis 2.25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And then you find that word naked come up in the middle of the story, at the, like, the pivotal point of the story. Uh, verse 7 of chapter 3, then the eyes of, them, eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And then in verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then verse 11, and God said, who told you that you were naked? And then it's at the end of the story, the Lord God made garments of skin, verse 21, for Adam and his wife and clothed them, again, assuming because they are naked. Anytime you have a word or an idea that comes up again and again and again in a few short verses, the, the Bible's trying to get you to pay attention to that. There's something going on in this. Something that this story is trying to help us see. The, the word or the idea is, uh, is a loaded word or concept that, that somehow to understand the story, you have to understand the word. Why is nakedness so front and center in this passage, that's, that's, that's the puzzle. Now we got to solve that puzzle. Why is nakedness so front and center in our story? Well, if you, here's where things get hard because this isn't a, um, so that all you can see on your own. This next one is a little bit harder because in English, our translators are, are trying to be helpful, but they make it uh, in some ways harder to see this. Uh, let me show you the word in Hebrew for naked. Uh, this is the word. It's erom. Um, it looks like that in Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew reads from right to left. Um, erom, naked. Uh, this is from verse 10. Um, I hid because I was naked. I was afraid because I was naked. Now let me show you another example. This is from the end of chapter 2. Um, and both of them were naked and they felt no shame. Uh, you see the word erom in there? Erom. And then we add the uh, im, uh, which is how you make something plural. So all that is is, so instead, talmid is disciple in Hebrew. Talmidim is disciples. So instead, so instead of adding an s, they add an, a, what we would say is an im. But this is your root word for naked. Now, that's naked. We all, we go. <laughs> I was joking with somebody before the service about, we're just going to talk about nakedness all day. Um, that's naked. Now, let me show you another Mention of this word, and tell me if this, I find this fascinating. The next verse after that is, do you see a Rome in there anywhere? Now, the translators of verse 1 uh, understand that this word, if you, you put it in context, can also be translated as clever or cunning. However, the word is the same. And in Hebrew, it reads, in English, it's hard to see it, but in Hebrew, you have the last verse of chapter, 20, or chapter 2, verse 25, uh, the man and the wife were a Rome and they felt no shame. The very next verse, um, now the serpent was more a Rome than any other living creature. And he said to the woman, 
And uh, that, then you have this word arom coming up again and again and again in chapter 3. And the very consequence of sin is I was afraid because I was arom. Do, do you see it? Is that interesting? That's it. You're like, a, the great British bake-off is interesting. That's mildly entertaining. <laughs> Come on now. That's fa- I find that fat. Somehow there's, a, there's like a phantom nakedness in our story. The serpent was the most aroma creature in all of the garden. The serpent. What's Adam's number one fear after he eats from the tree? God, I'm just an animal. Perhaps. God, you told me not to eat from the tree. You gave me the ability to say no, but I can't. I'm just an animal. I'm just like the serpent. I'm just like the snake. I'm just like all the other animals. You told me not to, but I did it. I'm just like them. That's why he's afraid. He's afraid that he's just like them. Now, how does God, when Adam's afraid, because he's naked, what does God do? Do you remember? Uh, There's going to be some curses, which we explored a little bit last week. Then uh, what does God do after that? Now, Bob, what what does God do? Nice. Well done. You're being one-upped by Gen Z right there. (laughs) Yes. Uh, God gives them clothes. God clothes them. Uh, God's response God meets Adam, and his biggest fear is, I'm naked, I'm just like an animal. And God's response is, you think you're just like an animal? I'll clothe you. Adam, you're not an animal. I made you different. The whole thing was about to show you that you're different. You're made in my image. You don't need clothes, but I'll give you clothes. You want to be reminded that you're not like the animals. Every time you see one of those little naked animals, up until the modern era where we started dressing puppies in sweaters, they were all naked. But you look down and you remind yourself, I'm not like them. I'm not an animal. I'm different than the animals. I'm different than the animals. God responds to the punishment by meeting us. By the way, isn't this just the heart of our God? He meets us in those moments um, where we think Uh, The temptation of sin is to get us to think that our very worst moments are all we are. Isn't that how it works? It's not just that you struggle with alcohol. You're just an alcoholic. It's not just that um, that you procrastinate. You're just lazy. It's not just that you cheated. You're just a cheater. And if that little earworm can get in you, if the enemy can get you to buy that logic, uh, all sorts of things can unravel. All sorts, of th- all sorts of things can fall apart. You're just this. You're just this. And our God again and again tries to say, we're, we're more than just the sum total of our, big, of our biggest failures. Uh, God understands that that's how sin works. Um, it just wants us to get us to believe this. And so what does he do? He meets him in his biggest fear and he reminds him of his truest identity. You're more than this. And that brings us back to Cain's punishment. Uh, now, the, that bizarre punishment uh, that God gives, you're going to be a restless wanderer, and uh, the ground's not going to produce fruit for you. That punishment, um, we said earlier that it seems as though at first glance, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, right? It should be something else. It seems like a weird punishment. But if the temptation of Adam and Eve, if their temptation is you're just an animal, and the way God meets the temptation is by saying, I'm going to clothe you, I'm going to remind you you're not just an animal. What is the temptation of Cain right after he kills his brother? What's he most afraid of? 
If you hold the two stories side by side, there's a response, and both of them are in fear. What is Cain's fear? God says you're going to be a wanderer. You're going to not be able to plant. What's his fear? I can't hear. I'm getting old, and my headphones continue to remind me that you've exceeded your weekly limit of volume. What is that? Yeah, I'm afraid they're going to kill me. Why is he afraid they're going to kill me? Because we tend to see everyone else through the lens of our own worst sin. Right? We tend to see everyone else through the thing we're most worried about, we're most tempted by, we're, the thing we've done. We tend to see other people through the same lens. Cain just killed his brother. So how does he see the world? Everyone's a killer. Everyone's got that potential, God. I'm afraid they're going to kill me. God's response to the, the biggest fear of Cain, how do you restore Cain? How do you redeem Cain? How do you like, put him back on the right track? The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. You're going to wander the earth. You're going to be a restless, like you, the ground won't produce fruit. Okay, now stay with me on the Bible. Uh, what is Cain's job? It's the very first thing we learn about Cain. What's his career? What's his job? He's a farmer, right? That's what his job is to stay put. Farmers by nature in the ancient world and still today, their job is when the winter rains are done, so like March, they're uh, planting their, their, their crop, and then all summer long, they're taking care of it, helping nurture it, and then in the fall, they're harvesting the crop. And they, then in the winter rains, they're praying. But the, the whole year is on one plot of soil. What's Abel's job? He's a shepherd. A shepherd by nature in the ancient world was somebody who had to continue to move. Every day, you've got to find green pasture. Every day, you've got to find still water. Every day, you've got to move the sheep to another spot where uh, they're going to be taken care of. So, so we've got two different jobs that the text wants us to see right away are like intentional. It's, a, it's intentionally mentioned. God says to Cain, you can't do your job anymore. You're going to be a restless wanderer. Now, if you're going to survive as a restless wanderer in an ancient agricultural society, how? What job would he have to take? He's got to be a shepherd. In other words, what is, how does God redeem the story? How does the punishment actually help the crime? Actually, the, how is it the most brilliant punishment ever? Here's what God says to, to Cain. Cain, you think your brother's beneath you? You think you're not your brother's keeper? You're not morally responsible. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I'm going to make you learn how to walk in his shoes, see through his eyes. We say comparison is the thief of joy. Um, you've been comparing yourself to Abel and thinking, I've not had a good life. I want you to learn how the, the, the stress of being a shepherd, how his offering of the firstborn was such a big deal. In other words, I need to teach you empathy. In order to redeem the story, he's got to teach him empathy. And I would argue that if there's one thing that our world needs more than ever is that. What we tend to jump through right away um, with the issue that we're dealing with right now, we tend to jump to debates about 
uh, gun legislation on one end of the debate, mental health, gun stuff on one end of the debate, and, uh, and on the other end of the debate, we're going to argue about like um, constitutional rights and uh, government overreach, and that kind of becomes the debate. And, and uh, what then can quickly happen is because now we have a debate, what we do in debates is we um, somehow villainize the other. So it's not just that you think about this, you think this way, and I think this way. Now, all of a sudden, you're a gun nut, and you're a, a, a liberal, bleeding heart snowflake, right? Now we've got these two sides, and the two sides, as they argue about these things, the, we got to continue to villainize the other side. we got to continue to see them as so wrong that they're, like, cursed, like, they're, they're awful. And how am I morally responsible for you? You're the problem. You're the problem. No, you're the problem. What the brilliance of our God is, before we jump into, those, a converse, that conversation is really important. We should have a conversation. How do we move forward as a, as a country? We should have that conversation. But the brilliance of God is, before we do that, if we can't learn to look each other in the eyes and actually listen, it could be that the person you labeled a gun nut actually has some legitimate points and a legitimate concern about government overstep, like overreach. And it's worth listening to. They may actually have a story in there. And it could be that the person who you see as the the bleeding heart may actually have lost somebody to violence or tragedy. And by just, we may miss the opportunity to actually hear the heart of them. How does God redeem the story? God needs Cain to see in this moment that the person he thinks is right offable, how is that my responsibility? I need you to walk in his shoes for a little bit. Isn't that brilliant? Uh, one of the things I love about the scriptures, you see it throughout the Bible again and again, is that the nature of our God is that when God gives punishments, the punishment in and of itself is meant to be restorative. It's not punitive, it's restorative, always. Um, it's, it's restorative punishment. The punishment's always supposed to nudge us back on track. Uh, every good parent knows this. That's how we discipline as parents, right? You're not going to discipline your kids just so that they can hurt because they made you hurt, right? That, that's an abusive parent. Um, what you're going to do as a parent is if you see your kids are stepping out of line, you're going to give them a punishment that help, hopefully helps them see later the consequences of what they do so that they don't do it again, It's restorative in nature. You're trying to help nudge them back on track. Again and again, what you find in the Bible is that you find a God whose love is when we get caught to nudge us back on track. Um, There's this line that comes up uh, in the book of Romans again and again. Uh, It says, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to their shameful lust. God gave them over to their depraved mind. Being caught is not God's... uh, Punished judgment, I should say. Um, being caught is how God shows love, right? I'm going to nudge you back on track. Uh, it's when God gives us over that we read in the Bible. That's when, like, if the callousing of the heart. The, that's when we've, God lets us make that decision. God gave them over. Uh, one last piece, and then we'll wrap up. Um, why does this matter? Uh, what this story shows us is uh, a piece of the devastation of not dealing with it, of not dealing with it. 
Um, maybe you've had something in your life where it feels like God continues to try to nudge you on track and you make these promises to yourself and maybe even promises to God and you're trying, but then you find yourself slipping and then the next day you wake up and you're trying and then you slip and then you're trying and then you slip. Um, what this story reminds us in a really graceful way is that there are consequences if we continue to ignore the voice of God. And in this particular story, um, what we discover in Genesis 3, verse 17, Cain is supposed to be a restless wanderer. But then we read, Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. Now, building a city is not wandering. It's, he ignores it. He ignores it. He finds a loophole. I'll get everybody else. I can't, I can't grow product. I'll let everyone else grow the product for him. He finds a loophole. And the... Text is clear with the consequence. Uh, the next story, it's hard to read because it's a genealogy. It's a list of names. But in verse 23, uh, we read this. Lamech said to his wives, this is uh, Cain as a kid who has a kid who has a kid, and now we're five generations later. Lamech said to his wife, Ada and Zilha, which by the way is the first time of polygamy in your Bible. So that's the... Anyway, uh, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my thoughts. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech is avenged 77 times. We talked about that passage and when Jesus talks about forgiveness, um, he goes back to this passage. But five generations, here's, here's what I want you to see. Five generations later, they're still dealing with it. The same sin of Cain is now five generations deeper, only it's grown. Uh, if you jump ahead a chapter, you'll read of, of a guy named Seth, who's Cain's younger, new younger brother. And 10 generations after Seth, we meet a guy named Noah. And notice what they say over Noah. When Lamech had lived 182 years and had a son, he named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. 10 generations deep, they're still praying that God would send somebody who can comfort them from the, the curse. The danger of not dealing with it is we can accidentally pass it down. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was in the back of church, and uh, I was talking to someone, and it was, it was uh, a dad, and his little boy was standing next to him, and I, was, I just got a kick out of it, because uh, every time he would do something, his son would mimic him. I don't even know if he noticed it, but like he did this at one point, and his son went... <laughs> cutest thing. Uh, and then at one point, he put his hands behind his back, and his son, at, like, on, on cue, put his hands behind his back. And, uh, and his dad, like, widened his stance at one point, and the little boy widened his stance. And I just had this clear sense of, this little boy wants to be just like his dad. He's his hero. He's his hero. Our kids model us. Our kids watch us. And that is both terrifying, but that's also a great opportunity. We can get worried about what, what, what the world is doing, but our kids watch us first. I uh, know some of you have had things handed down to you, um, and you've inherited some stuff. Did you know that alcoholics, children of alcoholics, are four times more likely to become alcoholics themselves? Four times. Statistically, about 30% of children who are abused will later abuse their own children. And then children of divorce are seven times more likely to get a divorce themselves. Some of you have inherited some stuff. But what you find in the scriptures again and again, what again and again, is that every generation is another opportunity to break the curse. 
you can break the curse. If you were handed something, you can be the one who stands up and says, I, um, I forgive you, Mom, I forgive you, Dad, but I am going to trust Jesus with this in a way you just couldn't. I'm going to break the curse. Here's the invitation. Um, my guess is that each of us have something in our lives that we, we sense God is trying to nudge us back on track. That's God's love. We sense that this thing, like for whatever reason, it's whether you, maybe you got caught doing something that you're ashamed of, or maybe it's just something that like you just kind of, the, the, the word we would use is my conscience, or I would use maybe the Holy Spirit continues to say like, this is not okay. Today can be day one of recognizing that's not okay. I got to deal with that. I, I don't want to pass that one down. Um, and if you have a child in your life, you have been given the greatest reminder for why it matters that we are our brother's keeper. Every generation is another generation. Every moment is another moment to turn it all around. Let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, uh, at what can be a really heavy passage, Lord, we, we pray that you would remind us that you're a God of freedom and you take great delight in freeing us. And so, Lord, um, in the areas that right now we feel enslaved, uh, Lord, we ask that you would set us free. In the areas right now that um, the, the thing we did has become so big in our hearts and our heads that it's all we think about. It's all we think of ourselves as. Uh, Lord, would you remind us again and again, you call us beyond just the thing we did. Lord, we are not the sum total of our worst moments. Would you remind us that, um, that uh, you sent your son to pay the punishment for the, the sins we've committed. Lord, we don't have to continue to try to pay them ourselves. And Lord, would you remind us of this great responsibility and this great gift of um, modeling for our kids and for our world um, the kind of God you are. Lord, would we take that responsibility serious? And would we be the kind of people who alert the world to the coming reign of, uh, of our God? We pray this, Jesus, in your name. And everybody said, would you please? We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.